Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Last episode, I talked about Juche, North Korea's policy of isolationism. And that ideology means basically anything the regime wants it to mean. And it is the way that the government is able to rationalize cutting North Korea off from the rest of the world. However, having a policy of isolationism doesn't mean you never interact with anyone. In that episode, I did talk about how during the course of the Cold War, North Korea was constantly hitting up and shaking down China and the Soviet Union and extracting as much aid as it could from its so-called allies. This episode, I want to talk about how North Korea has interacted with South Korea and the United States, and occasionally a few other countries. Because you can pursue a policy of isolationism all you want, but the rest of the world is still there. South Korea is still there. And no declarations of Juche are going to make it go away. Now at this point, I hope you have gone back and listened to episode 2 of this podcast. Back when this show was in its infancy, and it had a different title, and really pretentious theme music in retrospect. But in that show, I talked about the 1976 axe murder incident, probably one of the most dramatic things to ever happen in the DMZ. I also touched on how the demilitarized zone is maybe the most ironically named place on Earth because it is very much a militarized zone, maybe the most militarized zone on planet Earth. If the two Koreas ever reunite, there's talk of turning it into a natural preserve for a few reasons. Reason one, that wildlife and plants have taken the place over, and it would be a shame to just let all that natural beauty go to waste. But reason two is, it's filled with landmines, and no one really knows where all of them are, so it is maybe prudent, if the Koreas ever reunite, to just not go into the demilitarized zone very much, because you might blow yourself up from stepping on a North Korean or South Korean explosive that somebody planted years ago and just forgot about. But when you think of the DMZ, you probably think of Penmunjiam. And that's the village where the armistice was signed following the Korean War in 1953. That's where North Korean and South Korean soldiers just kind of stare at each other. And it's the big interaction point that North Korea has for much of the rest of the world. One of my favorite little things about the DMZ, though, is that if you're in the South Korean section, you can also see another village just outside Panmunjom known as Kijong or the Peace Village. And Kijong is a total Potemkin village. No one actually lives there. People show up at the beginning of the day, act like they are happy and enjoying themselves, and leave later on. And at night, when the lights are supposed to go on, they all go on simultaneously because they're on one common electrical system and buildings aren't really occupied. Kijong is supposed to be a demonstration in view of South Korea of how great things are in North Korea. It's also really transparently fake, which is fitting. Until recently, Kijong was also home to the world's tallest flagpole. For some time, North Korea and South Korea were playing 
who has the bigger flagpole and literally making flagpoles that were constantly slightly bigger than each other's. Uh, when I visited North Korea, I had the world's tallest flagpole, and I was sure to get a photograph of myself standing in front of it. It was my Facebook picture for some time. Uh, apparently, both Koreas have now been passed by Saudi Arabia. The world's tallest flagpole is now in Jeddah. I checked earlier today, but I digress. The DMZ is a big interaction point for North Korea, and there are a few other areas where North Korea has attempted to have, like, special economic zones. The kind that China had under Deng Xiaoping. North Korea has these on the South Korean, Russian, and Chinese borders. I'm not going to get into those yet, though. Those come much later. Right now, we're still under Kim Il-sung. We are still in the Cold War, and that is an era of covert ops and attempted assassinations. So, two of the most notable episodes of North Korea interacting with the outside world happened in 1968. And I'll get to the second a bit later at the end of the podcast, but first, in January of 1968, a 31-member North Korean commando squad crossed the DMZ with the intent to assassinate South Korean President Park Chung-hee. Now, to do this, the North Korean commandos disguised themselves in South Korean uniforms, avoided detection by the general public by sleeping in cemeteries and sewers, which must have smelled great, and eventually made their way all the way to the Blue House in Seoul. And the Blue House, that's the South Korean presidential residence. Their intent was to go up to the Blue House, dressed like South Korean soldiers, take out the presidential bodyguards, and then assassinate the president. But a police officer noticed that something was slightly amiss. The 31 guys wearing South Korean military uniforms didn't quite look right. They didn't seem to know where they were or what they were doing. And the authorities eventually confronted the disguised North Korean commandos, and a gunfight broke out. A gunfight in Seoul, one of the biggest and most densely populated cities in the world, right near the presidential residence. It was a mess. 35 people ended up dying. 64 people were wounded. And we're talking about soldiers, cops, most of the North Korean commandos, and also several civilians. Uh, of the North Korean infiltrators, there were two survivors. One managed, somehow, to actually escape. And apparently that guy went on to become something of an important politician in North Korea later on. Another, though, a man named Kim Shinjo, he was captured. And upon capture, he told the plan to South Korean authorities. They were hoping to not just kill the president, but also cut Park Chung-hee's head off photograph themselves with the severed head, go back to North Korea, and then use that grisly photograph of North Korean commandos holding up the severed head of a South Korean president for, I guess, ghoulish propaganda purposes. And I was surprised to see that, as of this recording in March of 2018, Kim Shin-jo, the lone survivor of this aborted commando raid, is still alive. Not only is he still alive, but he's a free man in South Korea. After a year in prison, he received a pardon, one he didn't think he would get. 
Kim, instead of firing his gun like he was supposed to in that firefight that killed and wounded a whole bunch of people in downtown Seoul, he fled. Uh, he was later captured by police in some nearby woods outside Seoul. And because he had the good fortune to turn and run away rather than participating in the violence, he was given the chance to defect to South Korea by a general who had taken a liking to him. He started a new life and eventually became a Protestant minister. And I can only imagine what a strange life this man has had being raised in North Korea, trying to kill a president, spending time in prison, getting religion, and then integrating himself to a very different kind of society. I read a few news stories about him, and he said that people still are kind of scared of him, even though nowadays he's an old man who's at this point spent more time in churches than in a barracks. He's still known as something of a boogeyman. Unfortunately, though, when Kim Shinjo's new life became public knowledge, uh, this was not good news for his surviving family back in North Korea. They were executed. Kim Shinjo has a hard-line stance on the country whose uniform he once wore. Given that the North Korean regime literally killed his entire family, I can understand why. But the 1968 attempt is maybe the most dramatic assassination attempt by North Korea, but it's not the only one. It's not even the only time they tried to kill Park Chung-hee. They tried to kill him again in 1970, two years later, when northern agents tried to blow up the South Korean president with a bomb. But the bomb failed. That wasn't going to stop them, though. They also tried to gun him down again in 1974, when he was giving a speech on Korean Independence Day. And this assassination almost kind of worked. The gunman ended up missing the president and ended up instead killing the first lady. So that's three attempts by North Korea to kill this guy. And eventually, an assassin's bullet would find Park Chung-hee. But when he was shot and killed in 1979, it was at the hands of another South Korean the North was robbed of their chance to murder him. That, though, is a story for another time. Moving on, though, in 1983, Northern agents planned to kill the next South Korean president, Chung Doo Hwan, when he was on a trip to Gabon. They called off that plan, though, and in his book The Impossible State, North Korean scholar Victor Cha speculates that it's probably because they didn't want to annoy African countries. At the time, North Korea was thinking that maybe it could possibly parlay some international support from Africa in the UN General Assembly. But killing somebody in Gabon probably wouldn't engender the kind of international trust they were looking for at the time. Later on in 1983, though, they had no problem with trying to kill Chun Du Hwan in Myanmar, or Burma. Chun was visiting Burma and was supposed to lay a wreath at a cemetery in Myanmar or Burma. And the plan was to blow up a mausoleum, kill him, and kill the several members of his cabinet that were also visiting with him and whoever else happened to be around. Now, the exploding funerary monument did manage to kill 21 people. And the North Korean agents did take out a substantial amount of the South Korean cabinet. But, once again, they failed to actually kill the president. So far, North Korean agents have been pretty good at killing people, just 
not pretty good at killing the right people. But circling back to 1968, one of North Korea's most consequential interactions with an outside power was with the United States during what is now known as the Pueblo Incident. The USS Pueblo was stationed in Japan, and its mission in 68 was spying. It was supposed to listen in on North Korean and Russian radio signals and keep its ears open while remaining undetected. Unfortunately for the Pueblo, though, it was spotted by a particularly fast North Korean ship, a ship known as a submarine chaser, which was designed to, you know, do exactly that, chase submarines, but in this case it managed to successfully chase down a listening ship. The North Koreans claimed that the submarine chaser was totally in the right because the Pueblo was in North Korean waters. Upon being intercepted by the submarine chaser, the Pueblo was told to stand down or be fired upon, and in a short time the submarine chaser was joined by a few other fast-moving North Korean vessels. The American ship was surrounded. Now, the Pueblo was armed, but again, its mission was espionage, not fighting. None of the guns it had on board were actually manned. The North Korean vessels closed in, did actually fire on the ship, killed one member of the crew, and during this whole time, the crew pretty much knows they're going to be captured. So instead of wasting time in loading guns that probably won't prevent them from being captured, they tried to destroy as much information on the ship as possible. They knew that the intel that they were carrying would be extremely valuable to North Korea. So, if they were going to fall into enemy hands, they wanted to make sure that when they did, they would be as unuseful to the enemy as possible. Unfortunately, they only managed to destroy maybe 10% of the valuable intel on the ship. Or maybe fortunately. It could be that that intelligence ended up saving their lives, but we'll get there. North Korean sailors boarded the Pueblo, handcuffed and blindfolded the crew, and took the Pueblo to Wonsan Harbor on the east coast of North Korea. When news of the capture reached the U.S., the Johnson administration weighed their options, and they had several. Johnson did consider a military strike, and he also considered a nuclear strike, basically an ultimatum, hand over the Pueblo and the crew, or get nuked, that was on the table. All the while, North Korea taunted the U.S. with photographs of the captured crew. Or at least kind of taunted the U.S. with photographs of the captured crew. Because the crew of the Pueblo, even though they had been captured by an isolationist crazy communist regime, still kind of had a sense of humor about their situation. And they ended up rebelling from their captors by flipping off the camera whenever they were to be photographed. When asked about what having their middle finger up in the air during a photograph meant, they simply said that it was a Hawaiian good luck symbol. So the United States was receiving all of these pictures of the crew that were meant to be proof of life in a hostage situation and ended up getting a bunch of sailors giving the single finger salute to their North Korean captors. And, God, that must have been a really weird thing to receive back in the midst of the Cold War. But diplomacy eventually won out. The Johnson administration did not nuke North Korea over the Pueblo. The Soviet Union ended up acting as an intermediary. And think about that for a moment. The U.S. and North Korea are negotiating with each other, 
And the Soviet Union is acting as the disinterested neutral party. Anyways, the deal was is that North Korea would turn over the crew. They had already been interrogating them, oftentimes brutally, for about a year. And it was understood that North Korea got all of the intelligence they could get out of the Pueblo's crew. They also got quite a bit of intelligence out of all of the documents that were actually on the USS Pueblo. Again, the fact that North Korea got something out of this might have saved the crew's life because they thought, hey, this was useful to us, might as well let these guys go. Also part of the deal is that the U.S. would issue a formal apology for spying on North Korea and that North Korea would be able to keep the boat. So the U.S. issued an apology, said we are very, very sorry for listening in on your secret radio signals. The crew of the Pueblo returned home, minus the one guy who was killed in the initial attack. And after they did, the Johnson administration immediately recounted their apology to Kim Il-sung's regime, which seems pretty much in keeping with everything I know about Lyndon Johnson's personality. The Pueblo, though, is still in North Korea. Now, I mentioned that it was in Wonsan Harbor, and that is on the eastern side of North Korea. Nowadays, it's in Pyongyang, which you might recall is on the western side of North Korea. Now, you might be wondering, how did they get an ocean-going vessel from one side of North Korea to the next? After all, it's not like they could just sail it around a peninsula. That's South Korean territory. So they ended up taking this boat overland to Pyongyang, where it is now part of a military museum. And if you go to North Korea, which you can apparently do, but I would not recommend it, uh, a lot of Westerners, one of their required stops by their handlers when they get there, is a tour of the USS Pueblo with a big, long North Korean spiel about evil imperialistic American meddling. The U.S., kind of amusingly and pettily, has refused to decommission the Pueblo. The Pueblo, according to the U.S. Navy, is still an active ship, even though it's been captured by North Korea and is now being exploited as a big propaganda monument in downtown Pyongyang. Incidents like this, I think, are important to keep in mind when we think about North Korea now. It's easy to think about North Korean international relations and diplomacy, especially with South Korea and the United States, as just being about their nuclear program. That's what gets headlines. However, even without the nuclear program, there is still the Pueblo incident, and there is still multiple assassination attempts, and there is still a collection of dead civilians, dead police officers, dead soldiers, and a dead first lady, as well as several state-sanctioned attempts on the life of not one but two South Korean presidents. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but with all that in mind, I find it utterly amazing that the two Koreas walked under a single banner at the Olympics just last month in February of 2018. The DMZ remains kind of an inescapable metaphor for the breach between North and South Korea. But South Korea, how's it doing? What's it been up to? I've been talking about it a lot and alluding to South Korea being sort of a garbage fire, but I haven't talked about it yet. So next episode, South Korea, the country that managed to actually get it together after years of being an utterly dysfunctional military dictatorship. As always, this is a listener-supported show, so you, the listener, should support it. 
doing a podcast does have costs associated with it. Hosting, research materials, my time, and thank you to everybody who supports the podcast every month. I couldn't do it without you. Uh, go online to iTunes. Give us ratings and reviews. That helps other people support the show. Uh, I am on social media. Follow me on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. Also on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. Mm-hmm.